Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. Jim Cantrell is the consummate space insider whose 35 years in the space business has given him a front row seat to the inside happenings as the new space race played out. Sometimes self-described as the Forrest Gump of space, Jim's story is an amazing intersection with historical figures and historical events. Jim has just published his latest book, Breaking All the Rules, the inside story of the new space race. The book explores the human motivation for exploration and posits that this instinct lives deep within our collective DNA. It's this urge to explore, to take risks, and to find something better around the corner that has driven the modern space race and is embodied by many of the individuals that played fundamental roles in the space revolution. Jim Cantrell joins me now on the Xterra podcast. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, my pleasure to be here. You know, by any estimation, Jim, you've had kind of a wide a wild ride from a Southern California gearhead to an engineer, both with NASA and the French Space Agency, from yeah. Mars balloons and rovers and the fall of the Soviet Union and your time in Russia. Tell us a little bit about how you got here. Yeah, so I really never wanted to be in the space business when I was young. I uh, loved machines. I loved going fast. And the only thing I ever knew for sure I wanted to do was to race cars. And uh, so I ended up uh, through a lot of uh, convincing of my my friends and my mother to actually go to college. And uh, it wasn't something that was in the family history. And uh, so I, I ended up in mechanical engineering and no surprise there. But one day I was... Uh, walking through the hall and I found a poster in, in the hallway that was advertised in the NASA funded design course. They were of course trying to recruit next generation talent and uh, hooked me. So they were talking about designing a rover for Mars as a contest. And uh, so I applied and I was accepted much to my surprise. And uh, I uh, did really well in the class and uh, won, won the national competition, which got me a job at uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab in uh, 1987. So what what were you able to take away from your your kind of fundamental basics as a gearhead into designing a Mars rover? You know, um, and, you know, I live in among my fellow engineers, but most of them are a menace to society with a screwdriver in their hand. So, you know, having actually built stuff informed me of things that, you know, only experience can inform you of that, that actually makes you a much better engineer. Um, and so so, you know there was that plus just the practical aspect of being able to solve problems as you find them, you know, until you've run headlong into a, a real problem with limited resources at hand and you have to solve it. Uh, you know, that's another skill level that they just can't teach you in, in at the university and certainly don't. Then there was that call from Ian Musk. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea who this guy was, and uh, I was enjoying <laughs> you do my. Now. <laughs> I do now. Everybody does now, and it's it's interesting how that's evolved. But you know, back in two thousand one, it was a nice warm July afternoon, and I was enjoying my ride home. You know, early afternoon, I'd left work early and had the top down on the car, and this 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 phone rings, and it's this guy I could barely understand him. I swore he called himself Ian Musk, but. <laughs> Certainly he called him you know, himself Elon, but his accent was very hard to follow. It was one I never really heard. South Africans a little different than than the rest. It sounds slightly Oxford, but slightly Australian. Right. And uh, so, so anyhow, I, you know, I didn't know who this guy was. And I, I said, listen, I'll call you when I get 
home. It's too noisy in the car. And so, okay. So I called when I got home and it was a fax machine he'd called me from. So I got that piercing sound and I thought, okay, you know, he said he was a internet entrepreneur and a billionaire and all this. And I thought, right. So, you know, this guy can't afford a phone. He's using a fax machine. Cause you know, I saw all sorts of comers back then, uh, these, these people that made money in the internet world and wanted to spend it on space. It was a popular topic back even then. And, uh, so I figured he was just another one of the, the the crazies that was was coming along. So he he called me back in about 20 minutes, you know, angry that I hadn't called him back. And I said, hey, you know, listen, got your fax machine. And he's you know, only time I've ever heard him apologetic. He said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so that was the little did I know that was the last apology I'd ever hear from Elon. And uh, so we talked and, uh, you know, he wanted to do this mice to Mars thing. And he, he had this staccato way of talking. And you had to listen because Elon didn't leave a lot of room for words in between his. And, uh, you know, he wanted to go to Mars and, you know, he told me about his whole life goals and, you know, all this other stuff and this thing called PayPal, which I'd never heard of. And, and uh, he wanted to, uh, you know, go, go get rockets from the Russians. And that's why he was calling me because I had experience with the Russians. True to, true to fact, I did. And a guy named Bob Zubrin had given him my name and Bob, you know, if you don't know who he is, he was, the founder of uh, the Mars Society at that time, uh, he was also a uh, an engineer at Martin Marietta and had uh, had uh, worked there for a number of years on Mars missions. So the rest is kind of history. You know, we met in uh, met in the airport in Salt Lake City. He wanted to come visit me at home uh, the next day, and I wouldn't let him because I didn't trust him. And uh, so I, you know, my days in the Russia taught me a few things, and so I decided to meet behind security. This was pre nine eleven uh, at, right. at the Salt Lake City Airport, and uh, there he was. I figured he couldn't pack a gun, and uh, the police were nearby. And uh, if there were trouble, then uh, we, you know, we'd have it under control. You've intrigued me a little bit about your time in Russia. Just kind of briefly, what were you doing in Russia? Well, the first stint uh, was with the French Space Agency. So back in late '89, I went over there to work on a joint Soviet Mars program with the French. And uh, this was at a time I didn't know you weren't supposed to do this as an American citizen, but I did anyhow. And I was funded by the Planetary Society, which it was you know, originally, uh, you know, Lou Friedman founded it along with Carl Sagan and Bruce Murray. And they and they they were tired of waiting for NASA to do stuff. So they, they were gathering up private funds to do interesting things to advocate space. Well, this was the first time they actually got involved in funding a space mission. So it was a big deal for them. So I went over there and uh, I learned Russian. So I learned French and Russian, as it turned out, and I uh, went to the Soviet Union and uh, found out what it was all about. It was actually there when the pooch happened in August of 1991. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that fell apart, um, I knew the program was over. So I came back to the U.S., was considered a traitor by many. Uh, they, I remember going to JPL visit and they wouldn't even let me on without an escort and that was back you know back when you could just wander freely in the place and I was that dangerous I suppose and uh one of them followed me into the bathroom you know when I was in the stall and kept knocking on the door and I'm like guys this takes a little bit of time uh I'm not going <laughs> to escape here I mean that's how I was viewed so imagine my surprise when somebody from the defense intelligence agency shows up with my boss who's a retired colonel I went back to Utah because they were the, the only ones that would hire me and my former professor, uh, Frank Red, who incidentally was the teacher for the design class that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, he, he and his friends from West Point all kept touch. And 
and uh, found this friend uh, Don found out about me and and wanted to meet me and that led to going back to Russia for about six years on and off uh, to help stop brain drain. So at the time after Russia fell or the the wall fell, Soviet Union dissolved. Nobody was getting paid in in the in the Soviet Union. That was in the communist times. Everybody was paid by the government. Everything was owned by the government. So that all ceased. People were hungry. They were they were trying to feed their families. And if the North Koreans and the Iranians came around and said, hey, you know, if you're a weapon scientist or a missile scientist, they'd hire you because they had need and they had cash. Right. So we did what we could to stop that. I, I think of it as, you know, the little Dutch boy with the finger in the dike. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we did what we could. And you see where it's at now. You know, it's pro all that technology is proliferated. It was a very important thing to do, but very, very difficult. Let's talk a little bit, Jim, about your time post-SpaceX. What did you do when you left what is arguably the most recognizable commercial <laughs> space company? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I still don't regret leaving, by the way, but there's been a lot of thought put into it on my part. I had a, a large chunk of equity in the company would have uh, probably meant I, I wouldn't need to work at all the rest of my life. But, you know, <laughs> be that as it may, I would have been a different person to live with Elon. He's very tough to live with. And I just, frankly, I wasn't wanting to set up the Mars base like he is really still intent on. So I uh, I started my own company called Stratspace, and we ended up doing a lot of um, business development for small companies, so helping them win you know contracts from the government. But I ended up getting involved in a lot of very classified space warfare stuff. In the beginning, you know, that stuff wasn't as deeply classified, but it's now gotten very, very classified. Uh, but, you know, I was in the early days of that where we were worrying about the Chinese destroying our space assets. We, we've known about the Soviets doing it. And that was part of what I did over there was, you know, get to know what the Soviets had actually done in, back in the 60s and 70s and actually the 80s as well. And, uh, you know, so, so that, that part of the, the career was very, very interesting. You know, I worked with people like uh, Pete Warden. He had, a, he had a think tank, you know, and every Friday we'd get together. And uh, he posed a problem. I remember one day he said, okay, gentlemen, suppose we're sitting somewhere in the Middle East and we're plotting something really bad. And somehow the U.S. government knows about it. How are we going to stop them? You know, so we'd come up with these ideas of how to how to use space assets to, you know, to solve, you know, real world problems like that. It was, it was fascinating. So I eventually got uh, about 2012. I got tired of, of the government. I, I became uh, an anti-war uh, not a protester, but, you know, very, very anti-war because I saw my, my son's friends coming back with body parts missing. And I, I couldn't I couldn't support it anymore. I'd been part of the problem most of my career, and I decided that, that I had to live an honorable life, and so I left. And I closed the company down, and it was about that time that uh, we got a lot of um, these space startups coming to me. Some of them had the same feelings and came out of the intelligence agencies. Uh, Skybox Imaging was one of them. And uh, that, that started the second wave of, of these uh, startups. So Skybox in particular was one of the first venture-funded space companies. And uh, we, uh, we managed to get it sold to Google for half a billion. And when that happened, suddenly everybody was interested, right? Sure. And, and that started, this, the I, I call it the second wave of the commercial space business. So you end your book with the beginning of Phantom Space. What is Phantom Space all about? Phantom is a... Uh, result of a cumulative experience of all these startups and the government work. And what we're doing is we're creating a ecosystem for, for the next generation of space applications, much like the uh, Apple 
if your Apple user is a is a ecosystem where it enables you to you know write books or write love letters or you know do your spreadsheets or whatever it is you're doing, we want to do the same thing in space. So we're starting by building a launch vehicle that's much like the Falcon One. We put together the old team from early days of SpaceX. Chris Thompson joined me, and uh, we're, we're teamed up with some of the, the early guys on the propulsion from that, that are now at uh, Ursa Major. And so we're building this rocket. It's pretty much the size of the Falcon 1, and we, we call it unfinished business because we think that mass manufactured vehicle is a way to uh, have an even more cost-effective launch service that is more of a taxi than a bus like the Falcon 9 is. So we're also building uh, satellite constellations, either for third parties or for ourselves. And in that same way, it, it looks a little bit like uh, Starlink and SpaceX, where you know, if you look at Starlink, for example, that's the only constellation with 5,000 satellites up. And the reason is, is because SpaceX controls the launch of that. And uh, all these others like OneWeb and so on have gone bankrupt. A lot of that cost has been launched. So, so launch is a very strategic part of what we're doing. And that's where we're starting because it's the hardest and arguably the most valuable in terms of the organizational uh, value that, that we can do first. So is a turnkey operation kind of the secret sauce to this business, or is there more to it than that? So I will tell you, I think the secret sauce is keeping your costs low. Um, I looked at one company, public company's uh, uh, cash position this morning. They had a had a, uh, a call with investors this week, and they burned four hundred million dollars last year. And they, uh, you know, they've got about uh, sixty million dollars left in the bank. And and I don't know how you make money doing that. You know, we, we've gotten to this point of we're almost ready to launch for about $30 million. And, and that's that's what we did in the early days of SpaceX. It was a very lean kind of kind of uh, machine. I think one of the criticisms I'll levy at, at my colleagues, and I've been guilty of this in my past too, is, you know, you tend to think of all this this money that comes from, from investors, particularly these large uh, uh, venture funds and so forth, as really the equivalent of government money without the strings attached to it. And the fact is that, that there are different strings attached to it and they expect a profit. So I think there's going to be a bloodbath here in the next uh, six to 12 months in the space industry. There's going to be a lot of shakeout. These unprofitable companies are going to go bank bankrupt the way of uh, Virgin Orbit. Uh, I have on my list, you know, about five of them, I think are going bankrupt. They're going to simply run out of cash. And I can tell you, Raising money right now is very hard, and uh, only the ones that can keep their burn rates down and have a, a viable path to profitability are the ones that are going to survive. You know, we as engineers tend to think of these things as, as you know, widgets that we're proud of. And so, you know, mine's made out of composites, and this one's, you know, got this special kind of engine that's powered by batteries. And, oh, we 3D printed the whole thing. The reality is, is we know how to make rockets. We just don't know how to make them profitable and operate them in, you know, like an airline. And that's really what the business needs on the rocket side. The satellite side, they're getting it. You know, they're, right. they're bringing the cost down. They're producing a lot of them. Where we're leaving all that industry behind is on the launch. That's why I'm starting there. It is part of that because of what may be happening in the overall broader economy that we may see this bloodbath of companies that are are perhaps going bankrupt? Surely, yeah. So if we were back, say, a year and a half ago when money was easy, interest rates were low, so capital formation was much less risky than it is today. You know, these companies were raising half a billion, a billion dollars, you know. 
I can't comprehend those kind of numbers. I don't know how to spend the, that kind of money. I'd have to have a bonfire in the parking lot to spend the money that some of these guys have. I, I joke that the assistants must have three assistants or something like that. I, I don't know how you even have 800 people at a small launch company. So, so yeah, there's definitely a, a, a change from two years ago, and we are going to uh, we're going to have this bloodbath with these companies simply running out of money. I guess you design it like NASA and have the deputy associate administrator for widgets or whatever. That is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, NASA's mission is different than a commercial mission. The commercial mission is to make money. NASA is to, to do human exploration, explore the solar system and develop technology. So, you know, whether or not you like the, the government and how they fund things, that's their mission and they spend their money differently. So, you know, commercial just can't copy that model. It won't work. So just real quick, is Phantom Space still progressing and are you planning still to launch this year? Yeah, so we are progressing. We've been slowed down by our uh, money raising, which we're, we're in the process. I have good news that we're about to close a Series B and uh, we're getting lots and lots and lots of interest because of our very lean capital structure. And uh, we, we will be one of the survivors, uh, but we will not launch this year. It's pushed us back probably a good solid year so uh the the capital raise is a serious serious risk and uh in fact we we rate it as our number one risk in, in the company that the technology is relatively easy compared to the the capital raise but those companies that provide good value uh that are uh, uh you know priced right and are not burning cash in the, in the in the parking lot are going to you know find the money it's out there you just have to just have to have the right story my guest is longtime space entrepreneur and author Jim Cantrell on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our podcasts or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Uh, Jim, your old company SpaceX has just shown you can design and build the world's most powerful rocket, but building launch pads to handle it is perhaps just a whole nother issue. Yeah. Are we understanding the difficulty of space or is that just the cost of progress? I think, you know, this is classic SpaceX. So, you know, if you have been through building a launch pad, which I have, you understand that you have a million yeses you have to get from people who have no stake in the game and can stop you cold. And a lot of them, they're environmentalists. A lot of them are the bureaucrats. And so if you are going to have water deluge, which by all rights they should have had, then that water goes somewhere and it gets contaminated. And these things are environmental concerns, as you're probably aware, you know, they already got sued uh, by environmentalists for spewing concrete out into the wetlands, mm -hmm. uh, which the concrete looks like rocks to me, but I'm not an environmentalist, so I don't <laughs> understand, obviously. So what I think happened, honestly, was they knew the pad would get damaged pretty severely. It didn't have water deluge, which everybody knows you need to have. What I don't think they expected was the concrete to come apart as it did and to reflect back up and damage a number of engines, which appears to be right. what happened. So in the as a whole, you know, this vehicle is too big to test in anything other than a flight. Now, if you look at the SLS, which is a comparably sized rocket, NASA spent 50 billion, maybe it's north of there, I'm sure it's north of there by now, and it costs $2 billion to launch. And that's because NASA has a lower risk tolerance and they can only get things done in that kind of envelope. But SpaceX, you know, has put about $10 billion by my estimation into, into this uh, Starship. And, uh, you know, part of, part of getting that done is to fly them a lot. And the best way to test it is to fly it. 
And you saw, you know, when they, they um, were flying the upper stage, you know, they had a number of explosions and things happen. I expect the same thing to go on here. Uh, the launch pad was probably just a way around the environmental uh, regulatory side of it. So I, I don't think anybody, if you're smart, is going to uh, be counting SpaceX out on, on this. They'll get it done and it'll work. So the question will be, you know, what will be the imposition of the government regulatory bodies and environmentalists on how they get it done? What do you see, Jim, as the biggest threat to Space 2.0? Capital formation. Uh, you know, right now, everybody's happy about it. There's a lot of big believers in this business. You know, I, I, I liken it to what the new world was 500 years ago. You know, people would stand on the shores of Spain and see the, the galleons head off to the new world, yet they had no idea what it would become. And that's really where we're at today in space. So there are people with a lot of money who really don't need to make more money that are willing to put that money in place to grow this new legacy of mankind. And those are the people that will be with it a long term. There, there is a sort of fashionable pile-on of other you know, mutual funds and, and you know, things that really don't belong in this business, putting money into it. Uh, nobody wants to see their retirement funds go up in flames on the launch pad. And uh, you know, they're, they're probably going to get weak knees at some point and draw back. Same with the VC community. We've already seen that. You know, they've got a different play. They, I, excuse me, but I call it a Ponzi scheme where they, they like to grow the value of the software asset or whatever business they're doing, grow it as fast as you can and dump it. And then who cares what happens to the value afterwards? Space doesn't work that way. It's a longer term play. It's something that's capital intensive. And it's that capital that has always been the limitation, even when the, uh, the government ran it, especially when the government ran it, you know, that would stretch out time on things. So, so that's really what I worry about. That's why, you know, I want to do what I can uh, with Phantom to lower the capital needs to get your stuff in space, really. That, that barrier has to come down. And you look at, at mobile, for example, that, that old technology, I remember carrying around. In fact, uh, it wasn't quite that when Elon called me, but those Motorola bricks, we just graduated that into the, the flip phone, the StarTac. But I never imagined that my iPhone would ever exist and you could do all these things on the phone. You know, I even take business trips without my computer now, which is unthinkable. That same thing's going to happen in space, but we have to get those people to come in that aren't space people. They're, you know, space people are an arrogant bunch. We, we uh, you know, we're like race car drivers, but, you know, we got cleaner fingernails and that sort of thing. But we know outsiders when they show up and a lot of people want to fleece them. And uh, that, that's just got to stop. We've got to make this, to use a word, inclusive of, of the, the broader innovation community. It sounds to me like you're drawing a comparison, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when the government was running the space largely, they were always dependent on how much money Congress was going to give them next year. Um, and now it sounds like that the private investment side of it is not any, not any more stable than that. Is that kind of a, a good analogy? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, is it more stable or not? I, I, I think the jury's out on that, to be honest. Uh, it's a different kind of instability. You know, the Congress could just chop things off for reasons that didn't make any sense. And a lot of investment had been made. You'll see some VCs do the same thing. I personally experienced that. But, uh, you know, by and large, the profit motive, I think, is a lot more stable than the government mission motive. You know, if you go back to 1963, whatever date that uh, uh, I guess it would have been 62 when Kennedy challenged the Soviets to go to the moon, you know, that was a nation state versus nation state, you know, capitalism versus communism on the world stage kind of thing. 
and that drove a huge amount of expenditures. But once that was over, we laid our sword down. We laid the the, the Saturn V rocket down and said, oh, all right, we won that war, and we went back to doing nothing. And eventually we had the shuttle, which I argue was doing nothing. It was a great machine. I love machines, but it was doing nothing in space. And then eventually, um, you know, there was a lot of talk about going to Mars and going to the moon. But it wasn't until SpaceX came along and really lit the fire again that, that the government, you know, stepped up their game because they could. Because that innovation that they weren't good at developing anymore would have shifted to the private sector. And, uh, you know, that's what I view. That there, there's going to be a partnership going forward between, you know, the government sector and the private sector. You know, I argue that if now. NASA could build iPhones and, and sell them, they would, just because that would give them more jobs in Alabama. But they can't keep up with Apple and building those, so they don't. And the same thing's going to happen in space. We, we those of us who are, who are the uh, corporate refugees from, you know, all the contractors that work for the government, have that as our mission, which is to, is to move fast, get the products out so that the government can adopt them and not spend my taxpayer money on stuff that competes with me. So did the government need that kind of kick in the butt from industry to uh, to get it, get its space program going again? Without a doubt, it did. And I would say worldwide. And, um, you know, <laughs> so much so that uh, one of the former uh, NASA administrators, who's a good friend of mine, has told me that he worries that NASA is so uh, uh, dependent on SpaceX that you know, they could become a predatory monopoly for them. So, so, you know, NASA was re-enabled by that. Can you imagine what would have happened had we not had SpaceX who stepped up to the plate when the shuttle retirement decision was made and uh, they developed the Falcon 9 for a billion dollars and, and, the, and the capsule? And, uh, you know, had they not been there to do that, you know, Boeing would have fleeced them. You know, yeah. that's the business Boeing's in. That's the business Lockheed's in in Northrop Grumman. I'm sorry to my friends out there who are employed by those guys, but you know how it works. And, uh, you know, they would just continue fleecing the, the, the public taxpayer, uh, you know, to, to make more money and, and pay their shareholders out rather than getting the job done. And there are very, very few people in the business. I would say the true believers are probably at the agency themselves, but they're not they're not the builders and doers, nor should they be. You know, they're they're the policy people. They're the managers they are the ones that take the, be the stewards of the public money make sure it's spent well, you know, that, that's, that's where that dream still lives. So when SpaceX came along, they grabbed it and ran with it as they should have. And it's possible that if they were dependent on Boeing, they still wouldn't have that private, uh, private shuttle off to the, the International Space Station yet. Yeah, we'd still be buying rides from the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, we are just about out of time, but we ask this of all of our guests to look out over the next 10 to 15 years in the realm of space commerce and your role in it. And tell me what you see. Yeah, so, you know, in the short term, I see, you know, continued growth in the um, commercial space industry. So the use of space, people don't realize that space goes through everything we do. You know, your phones use GPS satellites to tell you where you're at, to tell you where to go, your next stop. Uber runs off of space. So that's going to continue to embed. Right now, it's about a half a billion a year, which is made in space. It's going to grow to a trillion or two within the next 10 years. Long term, I think Jeff Bezos has the right idea where, you know, manufacturing and, and industry will move gradually off the surface of the earth into space. But we have to solve that transportation issue first. And you'll see about that same time frame, say 20 to 40 years out, you'll see SpaceX settle Mars. And, uh, you know, 
I know who the most famous human being in the world is, but I can't tell you what sex they are. I can't tell you their name, their race or anything. That'll be the first human born on another planet. And uh, you'll probably be able to thank SpaceX for that. Jim Cantrell is the author of Breaking All the Rules, the inside story of the new space race. Where can people get the book, Jim? So you can buy it on Amazon uh, in Kindle, uh, hardback and softback, soon to have an audible. I just got the first audible uh, demonstration <laughs> recording this morning. And then uh, on jimcantrell.com, if you want a signed uh, uh, limited version, I'll keep signing until I get tired of doing it. Thanks very much for your time, Jim. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at xterrajsc.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.